Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Welcome back to Less Doing Podcast. This is episode 213. How's it going? This is Nick Sonnenberg. And this is Ari Mizell. Today, the interview was with Seth Godin. And uh, it was it was a great interview. He Seth Seth's a very interesting guy, and if you ever if you've never heard of him, I would be very surprised. But he's one of the the great living marketing gurus there is, and a lot of his answers were sort of contrarian in a really wonderful way. So um, I hope you enjoy this interview. And it's just sort of coincidentally that Nick just met with Seth's son, who's doing something really cool too. Yeah, Alex, his son is doing a Slack consulting company. I don't know the name of the company, but we just had a coffee literally yesterday, and it was really interesting how, I mean, I think he's, I think the kid is like 20 or 21, I can say kid because I'm in my 30s, <laughs> but it was, he was probably the sharpest, other than obviously me when I was that age. Uh, of course. <laughs> uh, super sharp kid, and he, uh, he's very in line with the insights that we have about where the future is going and how companies like Slack, they're already kind of past that early adopter phase, and now they're growing and now they're starting to reach less tech savvy people and you know a lot of the stuff we're doing with the less doing for business where we're consulting companies and teaching them some of these tools like slack is one of those tools that we are consulting and helping people get set up for so it was just interesting to see someone else in a similar mindset i mean he's approaching it very differently than than we are he's just focused on slack and the bots versus us we're focused on as a whole making a company run more efficiently not just slack but other tools and automations but nonetheless yeah random that we had seth on the podcast and then i met with his son the other thing i want to mention is that nick and i did our first interview together the other day with general jeffrey smith who is a major general commander at Fort Bragg, where Nick and I did the American Dream University experience, or, uh, sorry, not university, American Dream U experience. And besides just being an incredible soldier and uh, member of the military community, he's one of the most humble people that we've both ever met. We both said that to each other. And we've been talking to the general about some things that are going to be in his future, and not much more to say on that right now, but there will be something coming down the pipeline. We're going to definitely do some things with General Smith. Well, one of the ideas that we're bouncing around, and please feel free to email us with ideas, but we're thinking about doing like a less doing leadership type of program. So if that's of interest to you, please write in. You can email me at nick at lessdoing.com. And if that's of interest to you, we can put you down on the list for initial people for that program that we might be launching in the near future. But yeah, back to General Smith. I mean, the guy literally could kill us with one finger. <laughs> and the most impressive thing to me was, uh, and I'm not even joking, he just commanded the audience. Like when he, when he walked into the room, there was just something different that you can't really explain. It's something about his posture and his walk and his handshake. Himself. Maybe the position that he carries his neck in, I don't know. But <laughs> I, want, I want lessons. I mean, the guy is just a man. <laughs> and I, need, <laughs> I, I literally want like catwalking lessons from this guy. 
<laughs> I yeah, I don't know how you feel about a touring catwalking per se, but the other thing also is that when we spoke, Nick, me, and uh, several other people from the Left Wing Mastermind in our community, we spoke at Fort Bragg. He was right up front taking notes the entire time. It was just, just a really incredible guy. So uh, look forward for that interview. That'll be episode 217, so a couple episodes from now, and then more information on him later. So the first link that I want to tell everybody about, this one I was really impressed at. It's called DeepGram, and what DeepGram is is a speech API you can basically put in any audio file, whether it's just an audio recording or even a YouTube video, and then you can search by keyword, and it will take you right to the spot in the video where that word was said. Now, anybody who's done any kind of transcription or recorded a live presentation, like you know this is a game changer. So you can take a four-hour video if you want, and you can zero in on that one part where you were talking about lawyers, you know, whatever it might be. Deepgram, uh, really, really interesting. By the way, I have to keep remembering that. People keep telling me that I have to say that what the the cool thing is at the beginning and at the end of me describing it. So that was a, that's a deep gram. It's a speech API. One thing that we're trying today, my friend Zach Raytano, he had an app called Shout that I loved that unfortunately closed down, but he's a great entrepreneur. And three weeks ago, he had this random idea and it's already live and it's called boomburritos.com and we're trying it today. But basically you just pre-order. All they're doing now is a burrito and they're making a hundred just on a Friday and they're leveraging like Uber Rush and Postmates, and uh, it's it's a really cool idea. And he's partners with some big chef, so we'll let you know. But in the next hour, we should be getting a delivery from Boom Burrito. And you know, even more importantly than the wonderfulness of burritos, I find it amazing when you see people going from idea to execution really, really quickly. I mean, Nick and I did that in three days when we started the last doing virtual assistants. But you look at a company like this; he had the idea you said three weeks ago. Yeah, uh, and, and, and but this is this is complicated. I mean, this involves logistics with delivery and creating food. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got a website up, and he's he's a, he's a, he's doing a hundred burritos on a Friday. And yeah, <laughs> I, I respect that. Yeah. Yeah, got to respect that. So uh, the next thing, this is a really cool Kickstarter campaign that just ended, but you can still get in on it now. It's called Enflux. This is really cool. So it's basically a full body suit for working out. It looks like, you know, just like spandex basically, but it has sensors throughout the arms and the legs. And it's not biometrics. It's actually giving you real-time feedback on your form and technique. So you can use this. There's a few suits like that, aren't there? Not like this. Not that I've seen. So it'll actually, like, you can use this for yoga. So for getting positioned perfectly, look at this. Like, for push-ups, it'll show you, like, you're out of alignment on a push-up. It's pretty amazing. Does it, like, also calculate, like, calories and, like, when I should stop because I've done too much? Or I don't think that it's actually doing the biometric aspect of it. But this Is is, this for posture? This is, well, yeah, for form and posture. And if you think about it, uh, especially, like, with CrossFit, for example... Anyone who's done CrossFit, anyone who's done Olympic weightlifting knows that you get, there's like the seesawing effect between your strength getting more and your technique, right? There's one point where you become, you're obviously strong enough to lift 340 pounds, but you can't do it because you don't have the technique, right? Right. So sometimes technique can make a big difference between the effectiveness of the workout. Yeah, you're thinking of that. Yeah. I mentioned that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's cool. There's a lot of these things now. Like, I just bought this thing called Hyxo Boxing. Yeah, it's a really weird name. Yeah, they need to change the name. I haven't gotten it yet, but it's it's um, in that space where it's like a sensor you put in a boxing glove. Ari and I have gotten into boxing lately. Mm-hmm. I, I had done Muay Thai. For, <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I, I, was in, I was in Muay Thai for a while, but now I'm starting to like just boxing with, with you and Blake. And you put this sensor in the glove and it, it calculates like the speed how many punches you're throwing, the speed of the punches, the, pow- the power of the punches, and then I think you can compete with friends. So uh, I can I can prove to Ari that I'm 
stronger. <laughs> we'll say we'll start. Post, we'll have to just post our results then. Um, uh, so this one, I thought you'd find this interesting. I'm not. I don't even quite get this. To be honest. It's called Cola, and it's uh, they say text less, do more. So they they have this thing. They call them Cola bubbles, and basically. You, it says you can do the job of dozens of texts or multiple apps just by using these messages. So I thought you'd find this interesting. It's, it doesn't, this isn't what, do what Calvin does, but it's kind of like, um, you know, you could, it's like uh, macros almost with text. Is it a keyboard extension? It's an app. Huh. Yeah, so it's, it's weird though. So like you can do a quick poll or you can, uh, so you can send everybody a, like a poll of what they want to do. You can do uh, everyone's estimated time of arrival for something. It's, it's basically like group chat or group texting on steroids. That's the best way I can look at this. So it, it, it warrants more looking into. But uh, yeah, if, you, if anyone's had an experience checking out cola and cola bubbles, uh, cool. please let us know. Uh, this one I really like. So I, I I have four kids, as you all probably know, and we take a lot of photos and a lot of videos of the kids. Um, so there's this app called Video Slam, and basically you can make uh, like a, a movie out of uh, pictures and videos that are in your camera roll. But what I like about it is that you can choose... Like I want, I want a highlight reel, basically, of the last week of my life, or the last 24 hours, or today, or the last, you know, um, and it'll basically pull that information, essentially, and automatically make a highlight reel, basically, of like your last week. That's cool. Do you ever use Caesar's? Um, I app? did. So yeah. So Caesar Koryama has the uh, the one second every day app, which I love actually. I used it for I think almost three months straight when it first came out, uh, and I, I used it a lot with the kids, or actually just Ben at that point, but. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a cool thing. If you haven't seen it, you basically take a one-second video every day, and then it compiles it for you. And he did a TED Talk where he had a six-minute video, which was an entire year of his life. It's kind of interesting how one second can sort of uh, spark those memories. So I like that. Um, this one is another one, another uh, Indiegogo campaign. This one's called Kiesel. And this, I, I, this interested me because we've dealt with this with the virtual assistants quite a bit. We have some assistants who are working out of country, and it's it's kind of random when you see there's certain websites that you just can't interact with properly out of the country. And you have to use all these, like, you know, VPN tunnels, things. Um, even LinkedIn. Like, we have, we cannot have LinkedIn tasks done by VAs that are not in America because the security settings will not allow it. So this is called Kiesel, and it's basically a, uh, a portable Wi-Fi solution <clears throat> like a Karma hotspot or your iPhone hotspot, but it unblocks worldwide content. Ah, that's cool. In, inbuilt. So, I don't know if that's we something. Should send this to some of our overseas virtual assistants. Yeah, probably. So it's it's a unique server network. Basically, they, uh, it does use VPN, so it's also secure. I'm interested to see how that works because there's a balancing act between privacy and then unblocking all sorts of content. So it remains to be seen, but I think it's a, it's a, it's very promising. Uh, okay, so then I have two more. Um, one is called theleader.io, and basically this is something that we looked at also for us, but uh, it, it, it's basically feedback as a manager, essentially. We have all these kind of apps and the things that will you know, pull team members every day and say, how are you doing? What are you working on? That kind of thing. This is kind of like, like how happy are you with the company? How happy are you with, your, with the leadership? Okay. Uh, I'm in their beta Slack team. Oh, good. Okay. So then you'll be able to tell us more soon. Yeah. So that's theleader.io. 
And then uh, the last one, this is a personal one. This is just an article on Jalopnik called If You're a Real Grown-Up, Minivans Are Cooler Than Crossovers. And I uh, am a minivan guy, and I love my minivan. That's not to say that Nick and I haven't reserved our Tesla 3s, but uh, that's <laughs> Independently only... Independently without yeah. speaking. <laughs> yes. But that's only a five-seater, and I need six. So uh, we have a Honda Odyssey that seats eight, which I love. The newest version has a built-in vacuum cleaner, which any yeah, parent you, will appreciate. Yeah, you probably need that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I don't drive my minivan like a minivan. So anyway, uh, I just thought that was a fun article in Jalopnik. Well, everyone, thanks for listening in. Next week, the interview is with uh, Vern Harnish of the Gazelles. And uh, as we said, a few episodes after that, episode 217, we'll have General Smith. So thanks, everybody. Have a great week. And if you haven't checked out the Less Doing virtual assistants, please head over to lessdoing.com slash VA and discover a whole new world of outsourcing. Take care, guys. The Less Doing Podcast pulls together the top experts in the industry to help you optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life so you can start doing the things you really want to do again. What would you do if you could only work an hour a day? Would you crumble or would you thrive? When I was sick with Crohn's disease, I was faced with that reality because there were days when I literally couldn't eke out more than an hour of work a day. And I had to figure out ways to not only get everything done, but get more done than I was doing before. And that is how Less Doing was born. Less Doing is about you. It's the easiest way to learn and implement a huge amount of productivity tips into your life in a short amount of time. Whether you're a crazy busy business owner, a tired executive in a large company, or a stressed out soccer mom, we've brought it all together for you to help you overcome the overwhelm in your life. For the latest how-tos and actual tips on becoming more productive, sign up for my newsletter over at lessdoing.com. But I want to offer you all something more. As listeners of this podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to get on the phone with one of my Less Doing certified coaches. I've trained each one of them myself, and they really know what they're doing. The first call is completely free, and you will get some real advice and tips on how you can be more productive in your life and get back to making things easier again. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the interview. So now I'm speaking with Seth Godin, and I I thought about this really hard about how to do an introduction for you, and I I just I couldn't come up with one that would be that I felt would do justice. So I thought we could just start talking. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. And any friend of Ashita's is definitely a friend of mine. Well, thank you. We it's it's funny. There's so many people that have been in my life that have led me to you in some ways, and uh, besides Ashita, but also uh, Clay Abear is another one. So. Great guy. Uh, yes. And Clay's been on this podcast. Clay's awesome. So, um, okay. So the, the, actually this, the very first question I want to ask you, so I'm based in New York city and I, you know, it's, I think it's, it's well known that you live in Hastings on Hudson. I'm curious why, why do you live in Hastings on Hudson? Why don't you live in the city or in San Francisco or one of the other hubs that so many people live in? <laughs> it's a long, complicated story, but basically, <laughs> basically I wanted to live in the North woods of Ontario my wife wanted to live on the Upper East Side, and we compromised on 12 miles north of New York City. Wow. Okay. Well, it could, and just to give some context, the reason I ask is that three years ago, I guess, my wife and I built a house, and we moved full-time to the Hamptons with, at the time, our three very young boys, and now they're still pretty young. But And we moved back to the city, and we had basically a full-time, a year of full-time out in the Hamptons. And I, you know, my business, for the most part, is fairly remote. And I know that yours is basically too. You can pretty much do what you do from wherever you want. So it's always interesting to me when people 
are not living in sort of main hubs and, and why and how that sort of affects their business and what they do? Yeah, I think that the real useful answer here is where we live is a state of mind more than geography in a post-geography world. And by that, I mean that if you live in New York City but decide to be isolated and to decide to be internalized in the, your focus, you might as well be living in Montana. But if you're living in Montana and you are eagerly putting yourself into connection with other people, then that's what they sense. And I am a short drive within three airports. I make my living giving speeches in other places. So it doesn't matter where I live in terms of my work. Conceptually, I, you know, in the 10 minutes before you and I started talking, I was engaging with someone in Nairobi, in someone here in my office, and in someone in London. And so we have this opportunity. We are all more powerful than we think we are. And the question is, what are we going to do with that power? I'm glad that you made that point because, you know, this is a podcast for people who are interested in productivity and improving their lives. And, and that, that is a big one, in my opinion, because when we were living in the Hamptons, I didn't feel isolated at all. And I was working and I was talking to people and I was traveling and, you know, I was not not well, I was an hour from, you know, two major airports, basically. But and the same thing, I was flying to speak and it was almost like no difference to me from living in the city and living there. Uh, if anything, I felt like living in the city, there were more distractions in some ways. You know, I didn't have to, when we were living in the Hamptons, I didn't have to worry about someone saying like, hey, I'm on your neighborhood, want to grab coffee, and then having to say no. Right. So the boundaries are key. I don't go to meetings. Uh, I don't watch television. So I save seven to 12 hours a day that other people waste. And you can find that within you if you think the work is worth it. Now, you said you don't go to meetings, but you have meetings, right? Well, not if I can help it. Well, I and, agree. I, and I agree. So please expound on that. So Al Pitt and Polly wrote a book uh, about meetings. It's, I think, a must read. Basically, the argument is if two people are talking to each other, that's not a meeting. Uh, if two people are talking to each other, that's an engagement. If three or more people are getting together to discuss something in a business setting, it's generally a festival to wait to see who will take responsibility. <laughs> because if all you needed to do was explain it, it's so much more efficient to send an email, so much more efficient to hop into a Slack room. And therefore, you can eliminate huge numbers of these things where people show up because they don't want to be left out or people show up because they think they're required to. And if we look at how much a typical executive gets paid and how many hours a day she spends in meetings... It's insane. And I have a very tiny team. Sometimes it's zero. Right now there's uh, three people who work for me. And we get so much more done for two reasons. One, because we don't have meetings. And two, because we care a lot about getting stuff done. Yeah, and, and that's key. And so one of my main focuses in, in my business now is what we're calling less doing BPO, which is business process optimization. And we're converting a lot of companies over to Slack. And one of the things that happens there on average, I think you see like it, something like 50 to 60% reduction in meetings. And it, it, it's also, it's not like that just happens. Like obviously those meetings didn't need to take place. Right. And, you know, Slack is not a panacea because what will happen is it will cause a structural shift in the way information flows. But unless the culture changes and people actually want to take responsibility, meetings will return. They may return in other forms, 
But most of what happens in a successful bureaucracy is that people who want to stay there avoid taking responsibility. Well, I also, I just think it's like a dead model. And I see this with clients a lot. Like It's this like Mad Men era kind of thing where the, the seven department heads had to sit in a meeting to inform the head of the company what was actually happening. And that was when there wasn't the technology to do it another way, I guess. But it's it's that seems to be what people hold on to for some reason. It's just so ingrained when people are like that. That's right. But it doesn't, they didn't have the meeting with all seven of them only because that was the only way to exchange information. Because most of the time they were listening to irrelevant data. Right. They had the meetings like that. It goes all the way back to the royal court. It goes all the way back to, you know, you need to hear what Genghis Khan is going to say to aid number six so that you can make sure they're not talking about killing you, aid number three. <laughs> And so it's it's hardwired into our bureaucratic mindset to make sure we are present in the room where it happens, as they might say in Hamilton. Well, and see, and that's the other thing, which I didn't expect to go on this tangent with you, but I, I, I'm going to go with it. Uh, so one of the things that I hate hearing nowadays with a lot of people, especially a lot of people in, in I'm, I'm 33, but I feel like it's people in sort of a slightly younger generation a lot of times, but you, you can't get a hold of somebody, they don't respond to emails, or they're unavailable for some reason, and then they, they come out two weeks later and say that they've been heads down working on something, and that's why they were unavailable. And to me, that's like just a lack of efficiency. And it, 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 it's anti-collaborative and I just, I just hate that expression. And it's a similar kind of thing. It's like, you're just, it's like being busy to be busy. Well, I guess, I mean, here's what my friend Steve Pressfield might say about it. If your job is to do the work, the work is your job and taking calls, going to meetings, engaging with people who have a different agenda than yours, isn't necessarily your job. And so we have to, I think, dig deep and realize that being a meaningful specific, as Zig would say, is totally different than being a wandering generality. And as a meaningful specific, it's entirely appropriate to say to people, no, I'm not going to get back to you for a month. And Neil Gaiman has famously pointed out that in order to write, he needs to make himself super bored because once he's bored enough, he feels like he has nothing to do to entertain himself except to write. And if that's what Neil needs to do to write a book that's going to change the lives of many people, good for him. Yeah, sure. And that's fine. And 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 that's with a lot more purpose, I feel like, than just sort of throwing your hands up and be like, oh, I'm just too busy. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is uh, I learned this lesson the hard way when I was uh, selling some stuff years ago and I left over the course of 10 weeks, 18 messages for the CEO of this company called Quark yeah. that, was, <laughs> that was famous for being rude. And finally, it just became a sport that like, I'm just going to keep leaving messages until he gets back to me. And finally, he got back to me and said, look, just because it's important to you doesn't mean it needs to be on my agenda. And I thought that was brilliant. And I couldn't help but agree with him. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is what, you know, everybody, everybody thinks that their own stuff is urgent, right? But that doesn't, that doesn't make it that it could be urgent to everybody. It's just not possible. Correct. Now, speaking of writing, so you have this, not to shift around too much, but you have this really good habit, obviously, of writing every single day, no matter what, right? Well, I've written a blog, posted a blog every day for as long as I can remember, certainly 
five, 10, 15 years. And I think everyone should do that. Everyone, right? And, and I, so, everyone. So, so I have a lot of, so I agree with you and I have a lot of trouble explaining this to people. And I've had trouble explaining this because I, I work with I, I, people who are, are not writers at all. And I, and I try to explain that the, the process of content creation, I think is really important to everybody. And like I, I, one of the things I do with people is I try to help them focus on the five percent that you know is really unique to them and the thing that they can do better than anybody. And in my case, I'm not a writer, but I mean I write, of course. And I believe that my talent is as a curator and creator of content, not too dissimilar of what you say. I think about how you notice things. Yeah, I think that if you create nonfiction content, you are responsible for what you say. There's a sourdough baking discussion board I've subscribed to for <laughs> for 15 years. Sourdough baking? Sourdough, yes, yeah, sourdough. Okay. Okay. Reggie, Reggie Dwork. Every once in a while, it goes away for a month or six months, but Reggie keeps showing up over and over again. I don't even know Reggie's gender. I think she's a woman, but I'm not sure. The point is Reggie has a point of view about sourdough baking, and so do many of the people on the board. Saying in writing, I think this is how San Francisco sourdough bread is supposed to be made, forces you to have a point of view. Having a point of view about something and writing it down is essential if you want to be something meaningful. If all you do is say, what do you need me to do? If all you do is say, what's next on my agenda? If all you do is chase the current trend, you don't stand for anything. You know, as you and I are recording this, we're in February, last day of February, the ridiculous presidential carnival that's going on right now. Yes. And the big networks have decided that it's the easiest, simplest way to get clicks. So it's going to be all Trump all the time, not because they have something to say, not because they stand for something, but because that's today's agenda. And the thing is, if you surf today's agenda, sooner or later, the waves are going to go away. Yeah. That's a that's a really nice way to put it. Well, uh, I'm not going to ask you who you're interested in voting for then. <laughs> but the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, too, is that you have a, a really interesting sort of definition and take on the difference between a freelancer and an entrepreneur. I was hoping you could share that. Yeah, I, it's something I wish someone had told me a long time ago. I am pretty confident it's a semantic difference that's worth exploring. A freelancer gets paid when she works. A freelancer works by the hour or by the job and is the business. An entrepreneur builds a business bigger than herself. An entrepreneur gets paid when she sleeps. An entrepreneur's job is to build an entity big enough to sell one day or to return the money to the investors that she took to build the business. So Larry Ellison is an entrepreneur. He doesn't code at Oracle. He doesn't answer the phones at Oracle. He doesn't sweep the floor at Oracle. His only job actually is every time he can think of a job, to get someone else to do it. That's his job. On the other hand, today, I'm a freelancer. My work appears. It is my work. I wrote it, every word of it. And if someone hires me to give a speech, that's me on stage. It would be stupid for me to raise money for a company like that because it's just me. And it's not about building something bigger than myself in the sense that it is an equity choice. The problem that people have is this. They start out as freelancers, they do pretty well, they decide to grow, and they hire more people to do the work, but every time things get tough, and every time it's important, they hire the best available person on staff to do the job, who also works for free, who is them. So they keep hiring themselves to do the work, 
right. which doesn't free them up to be an entrepreneur to build something bigger than themselves. I was an entrepreneur for a while. I was a freelancer for a while. And I almost melted during a period of time when I was trying to do both at the same time. When you try to do both at the same time, you're going to kill yourself and be bad at each job. How, how does that work? I mean, was that in the same business or in two different businesses? No, most people who do both are doing it in the same business, right? So what they do is they say, so when I was a book packager, I was the best salesperson on the staff, the best oh, creator. Please, please tell people what a book packager is, by the way, for those who don't know. A uh, book packager is like a movie producer, but for books. So in 10 years, I created 120 books. Uh, you come up with the idea, you find the team, you can do complicated books like almanacs or beautiful books, illustrated books, sometimes uh, funny books like I did not do, but a book packager created O.J. Simpson's legal pad, uh, <laughs> which sold millions of copies. The point is that for any given job, A, I was uh, the best at it because I was the founder and it figured out how to do it. And B, I worked for free because I owned the company. So when a project came along where there was a time crunch, you'd say, oh, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I'll just do it. And all the time you're saying, I'll just do it, you're not doing the thing you're supposed to do, which is building the business, hiring the people, coming up with the strategy, doing jobs that only you could do. And as a result, you're burning the candle at both ends and not getting where you need to go. So there are other people who have been in the shoes of having both jobs, decided they prefer to be an entrepreneur and do that, which is great. I decided I do my best work as a freelancer, so I've chosen to do that. Now, that's interesting. So, and, and so right now you would consider yourself a freelancer? Yes. I mean, I get royalties now and then, but basically, if I don't come to work, and you know, we, we can see this with the people who have come before me in, these, in various fields uh, and, and have passed away over the years, their businesses, their brand isn't what it used to be. Bishop Fulton Sheen in 1961 was bigger than Ed Sullivan. Right, But no one's ever heard of Bishop Fulton Sheen today because he hasn't made a new TV show in 50 years. There are exceptions. Dale Carnegie switched from being a freelancer. He wrote some very best-selling books and gave an enormous number of very well-received speeches to starting a school with his name on it. And that school persists to this day. And so I've started the Alt-MBA, which is the school that I run now. And in that role, I'm an entrepreneur. I am not a freelancer. I do not show up in class. I do not give active live lectures. It is something that as it builds will become bigger than me. That's what it's supposed to do. So it is possible to have one business where you're an entrepreneur and another business where you're a freelancer. I'm just warning people, don't do both at the same time. And, and that's very, very sage advice. I, and also, by the way, just as an aside, I have three friends who who did the Alt-MBA program and just had the world to say about it. So obviously you're on to something. Well, thank you. But that is really interesting because you, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, a lot of people would, would, I think, misconceptually think that if you are being a freelancer or choosing to be a freelancer, that you're, you're limiting your potential, for example, or, you know, you're not scaling, basically. But that's, it's very important to be able to know what, what mode you are better at operating in. Oh, well, you're not scaling. Damn straight. That's right, fine. Right, right. Congratulations. You know, the thing is, I don't know where it's written down that being bigger is better. Thank you. But, you know, Henry Ford built something super, super big. And at one point, Henry Ford had Ford shepherds raising Ford sheep to make Ford wool to be put into Ford cars because he could make an extra nickel doing that. But bigger doesn't make you happier. Bigger doesn't even make you have a bigger impact. 
It just means you're bigger. And if you want to be bigger, fine. But don't do it because you think it's better for everyone because it's not. No, and I think that's such a good and important point to make that, that people just always assume that, you know, will it scale? Will it do this? You have to be able to, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with scalability, obviously, but you have to be able to make that sort of personal choice that, that as you said, bigger is not better. And I f- fully agree with that in my business as well. So let's talk about, though, the question, will it scale, is a totally legitimate question to ask to someone who brings you a business that doesn't work if it doesn't scale. Right. <laughs> right. So right. if someone says, I do oil paintings, I can paint an oil painting every five days and I sell them for $6 each, but I'm going to sell a million of them. It's totally legitimate to say, no, you're not because you can only make 50 a year. It doesn't scale. Right. And there's a disconnect in their structure. A lot of people think that if they work hard, they then get to insert the line and then a miracle happens and then the business works. And you don't get to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as a freelancer now, what is your typical day like? I don't have a typical day on purpose. <laughs> Even as that, a freelancer? <laughs> totally. That's the beauty of, you know, before the internet, people like me were ostracized for having short attention spans. Oh, look, there's a puppy. Yeah. Um, but now the internet's our friend with stuff like that. So my job is to confront the resistance to do work that makes me uncomfortable to not have a pattern because once there's a pattern, anyone can follow a pattern. My job is to be a pattern noticer and then a breaker of patterns. And therefore, there can't be a typical day. And so far, there hasn't been. Well, and so what are you doing to notice patterns? You know, like what, what, where is the, what are the sources for that kind of information for you generally? Blog every day. No, oh, it, but I mean, it's but, that simple. If you blog every day, you will force yourself to notice patterns because you have to write about the things that you are noticing. We ignore patterns because it's uncomfortable to see them. And we have to create an environment where we believe that noticing those things around us that are working, that aren't working, the trends that turn into habits, that turn into culture, we can all see them, but most of us choose to ignore them because there's something good on TV instead. And if you need to write these things down, you will find them. Well, no, and, I, and so I'm literally asking too, like, like in my case, I've, I probably go through a thousand blog posts a day and I follow about 15 to 20 podcasts actively. And that's where a lot of my ideas and information come from. So like, are is, you're not watching TV, but are you reading the news? Are you listening to audio Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's completely irrelevant. It's like asking what kind of pencil somebody uses. Doesn't matter. Okay. Good. That's good too. So then when do you usually write? I'm always writing in my head and sometimes <laughs> I'm writing with my fingers. Okay. And so that doesn't happen at a typical time either? Nope. Great. Okay. What time do you get up usually? Um, it, it's completely irrelevant. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fine. I'm not being difficult. No, I don't think so. I don't think Let you're being difficult. Expl- I'm, I'm going to explain this. This is really simple. People who ask you to ask people like me these questions are doing it because they're trying to hide. They are hiding from the responsibility of merely, not just, but merely doing the work. And all the methods and all the life hacks in the world will give you the last 10%, but they don't help on the first 90%. At the first 90%, you know, let's look at the career of Bob Dylan, more than 50 albums, 
change the culture, change the culture. If you care about money, he's generated clearly into hundreds of millions of dollars. Here's a guy who lives on a tour bus, doesn't hesitate to take drugs, changed his name, changed his voice. Which of his uh, structures do you want to copy, right? It doesn't, that's not why Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan, because he gets up at a certain time or writes in a certain key. It's a choice. You just choose to merely do this work. And then once you're on the path, if you want some productivity tips, there are plenty of people who will help you. But first, you choose. Well, so I, I do want you to know that, that by answering that it's irrelevant, you're actually giving me a much better answer than just telling me the time that you normally wake up, honestly. Because, exactly. That was my goal. Well, and I appreciate that. And I was, I was hoping for something like that. And the reason that I bring that up is that there's so much push towards having this morning routine. And uh, Hal Elrod, who's, uh, do you know Hal? Hal? I don't. Uh, okay, so he wrote The Miracle Morning. And he's a great guy, and it's worked for a lot of people, but it's this like hour in the morning where you do all these different things. And there's morning pages, and there's journaling, and all the things that you should do in the morning. And I consider myself, oh, and not only that, there's dozens of people, probably on a daily basis, who are looking for better ways to become a morning person just because they think they should be. And I... Uh, I'm someone who I can confidently say I think I am extremely productive and effective with my time. I get up at five o'clock most mornings because I have three, now four children under the age of four. And I do not have productive mornings. I don't get a single bit of work done until at least after nine o'clock when somebody's gone to school. And yet I'm still very, very productive. So to me, that it's like, yes, I'm an, I, I don't know if I'd call myself a morning person. I'm up early, but I don't have a morning routine. I don't work out. I don't meditate. I don't do any of those things. And yet I'm still productive somehow. So thank you. You're welcome. De nada. <laughs> so, okay. So the last question that I really love, um, can't wait to hear your answer to this, that I always ask on in these interviews is, what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. Okay. I think the most, the, not the most, I will structure it this way. What's the best way to be more effective a year from now? Because everyone else is telling you how to be more effective tomorrow. Number one, commit to ongoing education, not education in terms of acquisition of facts, education in terms of learning how to see, learning how to speak, learning how to make change happen, learning how to organize people, learning how to connect. If you engage in one hour a day of learning how to be doing those things in which you are uncomfortable, then one year from now, you will be dramatically better at it than other people. Dramatically better at speaking in public, dramatically better at creating tension, dramatically better at speaking the truth, looking people in the eye, causing change to happen. Number two is create a culture around you that reinforces the effectiveness you seek. So instead of fighting with the culture around you, you use the culture around you that you've built on purpose to get where you want to go. So if you want to be a high-powered workaholic uh, accountant, don't move to Key West, Florida, <laughs> because the culture in Key West is not going to support you on that quest. And then the third thing I would say is to understand the power of committing not to tactics, but to strategy. Tactics are, I'm going to use this kind of pen or this. I'm going to do this kind of writing or I'm going to be in this specific business. Strategy is, 
When people think of me, they will think of someone who stands for blank. Strategy is I have a set of goals, personal goals, professional goals, community goals that I'm proud to own. Strategy is this is my stance on what it means to be a contributor to this community. That if you can do those three things repeatedly for a year, you will be a different person a year from now than you are today. Most people do not care enough to do this. Most people are too afraid to do this. But as I said at the beginning, we live in an age where each of us is more powerful than we imagine. And you could use that power starting now. And a year from now, you could look back and say, remember a year ago when I decided to do that? Look what has changed. Yeah, that was that was as good as I was hoping it would be. So thank you. Um, all right. So where where can people find out more about you, Seth? Well, the Alt MBA is at altmba.com. Applications are open for a little bit longer, and you can find everything else about me by typing Seth into Google. Yes. Well, Seth, thank you so much. That was absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. Good luck, Ari. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.